This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hi, welcome. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Fair. This is the last weekend of what's been a brilliant couple of weeks. I'm really happy to see you here. I think this is going to be very amazing and very interesting and very varied um, conversation. We, it is supported by NORLA, which is the Norwegian Literature Abroad, and the Royal Norwegian Consulate General. I think we have someone to look to for that, thank you. Um, and this is Jo Ross on the far side, who is from the British Sign Language, and she's interpreting for us tonight. So just to do um, some business first, can I ask you to put your phones to silent? Um, you're welcome to tweet, but the, the idea is to wait till question time for that. My name is Lenny Goodings, and I am publisher at Virago Press. And in this event, a possibly a provocative one, hopefully a provocative one, we're going to look at extremism. We're going to look at political and behavioral extremism to see if we can find a female dimension and also to see if that's a useful way to look at this subject. So we have here a woman who is reported from the front, who has put herself in extreme situations and has also been a witness to extremism, Osna Sarastad. <laughs> and we have a woman, a doctor, who has looked at what makes women put themselves in danger and what makes women leave safety behind in pursuit of a story or an ideology, Henrietta Bowden-Jones. <laughs> and in the end, we have Erin Saltman, a woman who works to understand and intervene even in young women's attraction to extremism. Very nice audience. <laughs> extremism at the moment has become synonymous with religious extremism and women and extremism immediately conjures up young women slipping off to Syria and while tonight I do want to talk about that and we've got a serious expert in Aaron here to do so what I also want to address tonight is female behavior when it comes to dangerous extremes and the responses to that behavior so this is not just about only about religious extremism I'm well aware that this sort of gender-based exploration is in itself dangerous. Um, none of us want to be reduced to biological determinism. Well, I certainly don't. I feel like I've spent my life fighting against that. But I still think, in, uh, but I've learned in talking to these three women and in thinking about this subject, that it's approaching extremism through the lens of gender does, at the very least, bring a new perspective to the subject. So, as I say, I have on stage three women to address this subject. I've asked them each to present us a five-minute talk, and then I'm going to ask a few questions, and then it's open to you. I think this subject will have many of you asking questions. Some of the things I ask my guests to think about is, is there a gender issue? Are women and men pretty much equal? Or are women viewed as victims or exploiters of extremism? I ask them to think about if being a woman in extreme situations makes a difference. Is there a gendered language to explain and describe women? Is there a different psychology? Women are often perceived differently. Does that have a bearing on how they're seen in these situations? Are they taken seriously? Are they visible? Is it even an advantage to be female? Are all those ideas out of date? And what's the appeal of putting yourself on the front line? So along the way, we're going to look at sisterhood, identity, and danger. 
So we'll start with the extremism we think of when we hear that word. Aaron Saltman is a senior researcher at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, who has been overseeing research and project development on women and extremism. She advises the government on issues related to online extremism and the role of the internet in radicalization. She's American, who studied at the University College London. Aaron. Thank you. Um, well, I work for a think and do tank, so all of our research is aimed at policy initiatives or civil, so civil society initiatives to try to intervene in processes of radicalization and also inform de-radicalization, which is now in the Oxford Dictionary as a word, so we're very happy about that. Um, but what I do within the Women in Extremism Network is we have the largest known database of Western women that have left the West to join ISIS. I will go with ISIS, it's an imperfect term, ISIL, Daesh, Islamic State. Um, so we track them through social media, actually. We track them through their Twitter accounts, forums, blog postings, Q&A websites. Uh, we track as much as we can and we archive it constantly. This sort of material is taken down constantly as well and reappearing under other names and guises, so it's a bit of a cat and mouse game. Uh, methodologically, we don't actually click to follow them and we don't actually talk with them. There's a lot of reasons for that, primarily because most of the questions we would want to ask, they say very openly online, but also because we have a risk factor where if I were to start talking with one of these women and maybe even somehow convince them that they shouldn't be there, if their husbands or guardians were to see this conversation, I could be putting these women at risk, which I'm not willing to do. Um, so I want to share with you just some of the uh, findings that we see when we look at this. What I do is map out push and pull factors. But firstly, I want to, talking about gender, just debunk some of these gender stereotypes. Often when I'm reading news articles about foreign fighters for the men, we hear words like angry, violent young men. And when we hear the women, we hear the words naive, fragile, brainwashed. And this is really a tragedy because a lot of the men that I've been looking at in the other databases could be equally considered naive and many of the women I look at are equally angry and violent. And so there's a language bias here that is also deterring security and monitoring surveillance around trying to help these women because we're misunderstanding them if we think that they're just naive, sexually groomed, and brainwashed. Within this database, and we follow about one-fifth of all the women that are known to have gone over through this database, they're extremely diverse. It's impossible to create a stereotype of who is driven to join this violent terrorist organization. The age range on this database is from 14 to 45. The majority are in their late teens, early 20s, but there's huge diversity. They have various education levels. We even have examples of female doctors that have gone over to join this effort. Uh, their reasons for going over are equally diverse. To reduce them to jihadi brides would also be incorrect. Because when we look at their push and pull factors, there's a lot to be seen. A lot of people are just dumbfounded why women would join this organization because it is a quite machismo, male-driven, violent organization. However, when we look at feelings of alienation and a lack of belonging, when we look at the perception that Muslims internationally are being violently persecuted on top of a feeling of 
there's a lack of action by governments. If you feel strongly that the Assad government is a terrorist government and you think that nobody's doing anything about it and you want to help, where do you turn? Or who do you even ask about it? Because often you don't ask your parents, you don't ask a religious imam that is probably much older than you and male, especially if you're a female. And the loudest voice giving you strong answers and empowerment are extremists. Um, the pull factors are crucial. Within this group of women, we see that they are empowered through sisterhood and belonging. They call each other sisters constantly. Uh, there's also a huge idea of utopian state building, that they can be a part of making a world a better place, which includes spiritual fulfillment. I don't know many other Western options that can give you that sort of empowerment right now, particularly after an economic crash where youth unemployment is high, even if you come from a good background, your jobs are uncertain, there's not a lot of hope out there. And there is also romance and adventure. These women are just as much adventurous as the men are. When we talk about this video game mentality, these women are also drawn to this sort of allure. And so when we're looking at this data set, we, we can't be reductionist. And when we look at counter efforts, what we've also realized is there's almost no credible voice out there being scaled up to try to reach these women, to give them other alternatives, or to even try to put out another perspective. So this is something that we work on. This is just a small snippet of the research that we've been doing. I did bring a couple copies of the policy report because I'm a nerdy researcher and I'd like to give everyone homework. But if anyone's interested, I do have a couple copies and I'm happy to talk to you more in the Q&A. But I won't take more of your time since we have some amazing other speakers. Thank you. So. Next, I asked um, Dr. Henrietta Bowden-Jones. She's a medical doctor and a neuroscience researcher working as a consultant psychiatrist in addictions. She was elected vice president of the Women's Medical Federation. She's honorary senior lecturer in the Division of Brain Science at Imperial College and the current co-recipient of Medical Research Council grants in the area of decision-making and impulsivity. She's Italian. I've sort of made it my business not to have any English people up here, actually. <laughs> She's Italian, who came to London to train as a psychiatrist and to do her neuroscience doctorate. And she's going to talk to us about gender. Thank you, Lenny. Um, being, being half Italian, I could talk for hours. So I've made myself write down five minutes worth of really important information I wanted to share with you. So bear with me, I will read it out because that's the only way you're going to get a coherent short version of what would take me about an hour to tell you. So good evening to you all. As a psychiatrist and neuroscientist, I'm going to talk to you tonight about my favorite topic, human decision making. In particular, I'll be giving you an idea of the type of research that has been conducted to understand whether women are as impulsive as men when making decisions. By using our understanding of human behavior, I would like to try and make sense, at least, in, at least in part, of some of the extreme choices we have been hearing about. I will also talk to you about sensation-seeking in psychiatric terms and look at gender differences within this particular trait. The big question tonight is this. Are some people more predisposed towards making decisions in life that may lead them into higher levels of personal danger? And if so, then what determines these decisions? 
An example of this type of behavior would be choosing a high-risk career, such as becoming a war correspondent. Another may be a life choice of extremism that may lead young and hitherto inexperienced young people to leave their country, to go abroad and take part in extreme political or religious activities. As this panel tonight is focusing on female behavior, I will look specifically at gender differences in order to contextualize the behaviors we have heard about tonight. Sensation-seeking is a personality trait reflecting the desire to pursue novel or intense experiences, even if risks are involved. Questionnaires measuring this trait ask people whether they would like to try adventurous activities such as extreme sports or traveling to remote places, whether they enjoy speaking in front of large audiences and enjoy loud parties. They ask whether people dislike repetitive or dull activities, such as standing in queues. People who score high on self-reported measures of sensation-seeking, unsurprisingly, have a higher propensity to misuse drugs, to suffer accidental injuries, or engage in risky sexual behaviors than low-scoring people. Now for the interesting bit. Men score higher than women on tests rating them for this trait. And this difference is seen across the whole world. It's been used a lot as a test. In particular, men consistently score higher than women on three of the four subscales. Thrill and adventure seeking, which looks at interest in physically challenging activities. Disinhibition, showing favorable attitudes to uninhibited social interactions. Boredom's acceptability, indicating dislike for repetition and predictability. However, men and women perform similarly on experience seeking, showing similar interests in low-risk novel experiences. So here, for the discussion later, it's the low-risk and high-risk issue that we might focus on. If these gender differences remain constant through the decades, what aspect of current society is making some women take up extremism in a way not seen before? What role does the late maturation of the frontal lobes in teenagers play when we look at young people making high-risk choices, both personally and politically? As a neuroscientist, this is possibly the most interesting aspect to me personally about these young people leaving their home countries to go and become political extremists. Some vocational pursuits exhibit a higher than average rate of sensation-seeking traits, with war correspondents and mountain climbers being the most frequently cited and studied. The existence of female war correspondents, female climbers, and for the sake of today's discussion, female terrorists, show that women too can display high levels of sensation-seeking traits. But are these women impulsive? Are there less women in these categories because of cultural norms? Think of the climber who dies on a climbing expedition, or the war reporter in a war zone, their motherhood questioned by the press as they prioritize their needs over their children's. Or are there choices of lifestyle and profession instead dictated by hormones, and by the way hormones impact on our desire to achieve and to conquer? Many studies have shown a positive correlation between testosterone levels and sensation-seeking scores. 
What makes some women choose to risk their lives going against strong, culturally transmitted social norms? Are they just impulsive? More impulsive than men following similar careers? One question we have to ask ourselves is whether sensation-seeking traits in women have changed over the years. Cross and her colleagues about four years ago used the same scale that I've mentioned and found that sex differences in total scores have remained stable from 1978 to 2012. In particular, sex differences were stable in disinhibition and boredom susceptibility, but had declined in thrill and adventure-seeking. Just a few words about impulsivity. Described as a tendency to act spontaneously and without deliberation, this comprises a set of behaviours such as inability to plan ahead, a lack of perseverance and a tendency towards novelty-seeking. When looking at impulsivity, Weifer and colleagues showed that sex differences do exist. In laboratory animals, we see more impulsive action in males but more impulsive choice is seen in females. In humans, women are unable to postpone gratification as well as men when tested for impulsive choice. In summary, are the extreme political and religious behaviors that we will be discussing tonight manifestation or a more of a more even landscape in terms of gender and risk-taking or are they instead illustrations of psychological vulnerabilities in these young women? And if so, what role should society play? Protect ourselves or protect them? Before ending my contribution this evening, I would like to thank Catherine Cross and colleagues at Durham University who have done the majority of the research I've discussed tonight. Thank you. So now for one of those fearless, reckless, <laughs> dramatic people. Um, this is Osna Sarastad, who I've known a very long time because we published her at Virago from the beginning of her publishing career. She lives in Oslo. She's a Norwegian freelance, oh uh, no, sorry, a Norwegian writer now, <laughs> best known for her accounts of everyday life in war zones, most notably Kabul after 2001, Baghdad in 2002, and the ruined Groshny in 2006. She has done, uh, her recent book is about Andre, Andre Brevik, one of us She's just that we have just published. Um, I would say up until now the most famous one probably is the bookseller of Kabul has really put you on the map, didn't it? And I've asked her to talk about the extremes of actually being on the front line. Yes, uh, I understand now that you needed a case for the panel <laughs> and you had to choose between a female mountain climber, a female terrorist or a female war correspondent. It's like, yeah, easier to find me then. Um, and uh, as a war correspondent or frontline correspondent or foreign correspondent, call it what you like, uh, we are here to tell stories about the world and I, uh, I have to underline that. That is the main objective of what we do. But then, then of course, who are we and is there a difference between men and women in that field? Uh, and I want to just start about a little story about uh, my mother because I think we are basically very formed by our mothers and of course by our surroundings. Uh, I grew up uh, in Norway in the 70s and I wanted, as every little girl, I wanted pink dresses and my uh, mother would uh, sue me orange trousers. I wanted to be signed up for ballet classes and my mother signed me up for swimming classes. And I wanted to be a cheerleader and my mother bought me a trumpet to be in the school <laughs> orchestra. 
So, and she also told me a lesson that whatever uh, a boy can do, a girl can do too. Whatever a boy has to do, no, whatever a girl has to do, a boy has to do too. So, fun stuff and boring stuff all together. Uh, and um, this has probably, I thought about it later, it's probably given me uh, self-confidence that uh, after I went, came, uh, after uh, went out from my pink period, uh, I, I took it for granted that I could do anything. Uh, and in that aspect, at least in Norway, I also haven't met any barriers in life in that aspect. I went to Russia and I, I uh, got a job as a, f as a Moscow correspondent uh, when I was very young, when I was 23, uh, because I had a foreign editor who said that it's easier to teach journalism to a Russian speaker than to teach Russian to a journalist. And um, you might remember the war in Chechnya started then a year after I was uh, well in '94, uh, when I'd been there for a year, uh, and that was my first war experience, and um, probably the most significant in the way that I was unprepared. I didn't have a map. I didn't have money. I just wanted to go down to the war. Uh, and how do you go to a war when you have no money, no preparations, no nothing? And I was thinking, someone is going, right? It's the soldiers, the, the bomb uh, planes, they are going. So I went to the Russian Ministry of Defense and asked if I could get onto a troop transport plane to Grozny. And they were like, this was the Yeltsin time, anything was possible in Russia. It's like, yeah, the next plane is tomorrow morning at five, come to the military airport. And he t wrote me a little handwritten note about that. And I flew into the war with the soldiers and um, landed. Uh, they left me with a big Russian flag jacket and a helmet, and I was on my own. Uh, and um, I'm not going into details uh, now. It's all in my book, The Angel of Grosny. Um, uh, but um, when, more sig significantly, when I came back from the war zone, I only wanted to get back down to the Caucasus, uh, down to the war. Uh, life in Moscow had lost its colors. It was gray uh, and it was uh, uh, boring and it was not important. Uh, and I'm mentioning this because it's like now that I've also worked on extremism uh, and that will be discussed later, the female uh, extremist or the, fem the girls go to going to Syria uh, do I have a better understanding of it because I've touched upon those feelings myself, not as a terrorist, but the high sensation seeking or the thrill seeking. Um, and I, for my, my uh, sake, I can explain it in the way that when you're, when you're in a war zone, everything you do is important. If you go right, you might get killed. If you go left, you might survive, but you don't really know. Every step you take could be like the step you should not have taken. So, so it's like all even, you know, the small daily things are, uh, are of existential importance in a way. Uh, and uh, it was also not only about me, but about meeting people who are fighting, uh, in this case, for freedom, but it's a, it's a fight on life and death. Uh, uh, and that is something that our Western lives are not very filled with. 
Um, so it was, I remember I was uh, going back and forth for several years down to the Caucasus uh, until my editor um, uh, prevented me from going. And, and why did you prevent me? Because he said, you know, I can't take more phone calls from your mother because she's <laughs> calling constantly. So you're the one forcing Osnes to go to the war? You're so mean. And then I was thinking, that mother, she said that, you know, you make your own decisions. No one's forcing you. To, you take your... So, so anyway, um, that was the start. And, and uh, later, uh, as you mentioned, Afghanistan, Iraq. And, and it is something about... Um, uh, yeah, being drawn to places that are uh, where history is being written. I have to, you know, uh, as I get older, uh, the, the thrill I could get, um, you know, before of um, uh, that you're actually risking your life, you're playing with your life a bit, uh, that's a feeling I hate now. So uh, I think it's also an age issue, even for these young girls who are going. Uh, if they go at 16 or 19 or 21, if you just prevent them from going for a couple of years, they might not even go uh, as terrorists, so at least for me and also uh, what the research proves. So, so um, yeah, that's a, I think that's enough for a little start of, uh, of the case study here at the panel. Uh, and um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to ask a few questions, and then, as I said, I'm going to open the floor to you. So get your get your minds in gear. Um, I want to ask about mothers. I mean, since we're talking about women, and I think I'll start with you, Erin, because you were saying earlier that the mothers actually play quite an important role with these girls. Yeah, well, I think that, that some people from the outset, obviously it's very hard for a family when a child radicalizes and goes off to Syria, and there's a lot of social pressure around that family, and there's a, a lot of times there's an assumption that, let's look at the family, what did they do? And actually, a lot of these families are absolutely shocked and appalled, but when we look into the rhetoric of the girls online, when they have blogs or when they talk about it, they actually often say that the hardest thing to do was to leave their mothers that the hardest thing to do next will be to call them and tell them what they've done and that it actually feels haram or against what they should really be doing. And there's a support network talking to these girls to try to tell them why they need to leave their mother. And actually the mother is one of these big pull factors. So one of the things we look at is getting out mother's voices and getting awareness around the mother as well. Not to witch hunt your own children, but to, to create a voice or an infrastructure where we can kind of target that voice a little bit better. But that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because one of the things, the sort of um, conflict I think we have in a, in a world where we're trying to prevent these girls from going is sort of picking off bits of the family and sort of looking like the authorities coming in and we'll take care of you. But it, surely people don't necessarily believe that, really. No, I mean, often, as I said, the family feels completely victimized afterwards, not only by authorities, but by their own communities. They become ostracized very easily. There's a couple organizations in the UK that kind of try to help the families and especially women's networks, but actually there's very little out there. So it's a, it's a very traumatic event in full. There are a couple examples of some families that did have extremist tendencies, but this is few and far between when we look at the general trends. Um, Henriette, I want to ask you about mothers as well, actually, because um, you, you're the study that you um, 
given us, which are really interesting, actually, and kind of takes you slightly back to, isn't it, to sort of more basic things. But um, how, what role do you think the mothers play in these, in, in, the, in creating? I mean, here we are talking. <laughs> Sorry to use you as a specimen, but you're, you're great. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think Austin is such an interesting person because of her mother being such a strong feminist to start off and, and sending her off. And do you find that that affects Thank you for asking that question. Maybe I could shift slightly onto a, a different uh, um, group of people and talk about extreme use of substances uh, as a, or, or extreme alcohol drinking and the role of mothers there. Because one of the things that we uh, see as psychiatrists is that um, in extreme behavior, there is a genetic, genetic component as much as there is an environmental component and a family influence. So the, the thing that I find so heartbreaking when we talk about mothers, sometimes it's patients of mine who come in, in terrible trouble with severe dependence to, to substances, uh, whose mothers also uh, have uh, addiction problems, and the mothers have by now often uh, manage to clean up, as we say, they're in recovery, they're attending AA meetings and A meetings or, or, or are just doing it on their own and are clean of substances, but they have unfortunately, through their genes, passed this vulnerability. And, uh, and so the role of mother as a nurturing, caring uh, entity and then the role of the mother as a harmful entity without wanting to be in psychiatry is very powerful. And also, as you know, uh, mental illness too uh, can, uh, has a has strong genetic component. So we sometimes see that with depression or bipolar affective disorder or you name it. And it always breaks my heart when the parents are very supportive uh, most of the time uh, and wanting to do as much as they can but the fact is sometimes we see this. So um, in terms of extreme behavior, equally, we do know that there is some form of genetic uh, component there and impulsive parents do often produce more impulsive children. And uh, of course, the environment is important, but we do know that uh, if you look at twin studies, behavior of twins who are separated at birth from their parents does often reflect parental behavior even when they've never met their parents so there's an issue there about impacting on your on your on your children from far away too so we always knew Catherine Whitehorn who I'm sure some of you will know had this wonderful line which is a mother's place is in the wrong <laughs> <laughs> kind of somehow we go back to that again um, I want to pick up something you said, Osna, about um, youth. Because I was thinking, you know, when I was thinking about the young women that we're talking about um, as examples of going off, looking back um, to someone like Joan Didion, who's just been recently talking about how she dropped everything and went to Nicaragua just because she read it in the paper that morning. She said, I must go. And, you know, then those sort of young communists who went off to the Spanish Civil War, even um, looking at young men from the First World War, when, I mean, whatever reasons people were going. But there, is, there, there does seem to be, as well as the, um, there seems to be youth playing as much a role here as gender. I mean, and maybe because we are in a more advanced state in terms of equality of women, maybe women are now caught up in that too. But do you think that 
that youth is playing a very big part here. Yeah, I think definitely. When you look at the jihadists, uh, there's almost no one who's... You, you have until 45, but you have very few 40-year-olds who go for the first time uh, just to, uh, to, to fight, uh, not going to senior positions. Uh, and I think that is probably a bigger factor than because I was trying to find, you know, in 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 in, uh, in my field of work, the difference between men and women. It's hard to find. It's more unifying forces than than things you that are in different the war in the war reporting. That uh, there is a search of trying to find out, uh, which is like I think after all the driving force more than the high sensation seeking uh, feeling. Um, that you, um, which is, um, yeah, which you actually need to be also quite concentrated to, to do. Uh, and uh, so I think the youth factor, and, and I, I, talking about mothers, I just wanted to say one little thing about Breivik and his mother. Oh, yes, please, now yeah. that we went in the, into the subject of mothers. Because I uh, remember Anders Breivik, uh, who did the terrible terror act in Norway in 2011, 22nd of July. Uh, first, he exploded the bomb in the government area, killing eight people, and then he hunted down and killed and shot in their faces, uh, in their necks, in their backs, 69 teenagers at an island, so 77 altogether. And it's very difficult to kill, uh, research shows. Uh, to be a terrorist, to explode yourself is not that easy, but to kill someone um, uh, straight looking at them, it's something that uh, most people are not able to do it. Uh, what made him able to do that? And what um, his life is very document documented because uh, he and his mother was very much in for observation. They were for uh, a month uh, observed at the psychiatric ward in, in Oslo uh, for children and adolescents. And uh, when he, he's then four, and they come to the center and the psychiatrist is seeing a boy, he doesn't smile, he doesn't laugh, he doesn't look at you in the eyes, he doesn't play, he takes no interest in toys, he avoids uh, contact in all, in all ways. Uh, and then uh, they observe the mother who they describe as borderline uh, personality, this was in 1983. Uh, and then after a month at the center, they see how the bo little boy improves. Uh, and they, they realize there's nothing wrong with him as such, but it's the dysfunctional relationship to the mother. The, and they observe the mother screaming at him, I wish you were dead, I wish you were never born. And then in the next moment, hug him uh, and say he loves him. Uh, uh, and then sleeping tight at night and then the suddenly hating him again. Which is the worst thing you can do to a child back and forth? The, the person who's supposed to give you safety is the one who uh, scares you the most. And this goes, and you probably know more <laughs> about this than me, but this goes, this kind of behavior from a parent goes directly into the building of a self. Uh, and it goes directly into the building of empathy. If you don't have, uh, if you don't get a secure attachment to a person within the first 18 months of your life, there are things not unmendable, but that is broken in you. And then what, when Anders Breivik, um, uh, he, he lived with his mother, most of his life until he was 32, um, some periods alone, but most of the time. Uh, and then when the court came, case came up, he said, there's one person I wish will not give a statement or a witness here, and that's my mother. She's my Achilles heel. 
the only one I'm afraid of in my life, the only person that can break me down is her. Uh, and that is someone who's like so cold-bloodedly uh, killed all these people. And, uh, and it's, of course, in the book, I don't like draw conclusions, but somehow uh, there's a revenge action in it towards the mother. Um, and uh, when we talk about female extremism, uh, uh, switch it then to male extremism. In most male extremism, there's a very strong misogynist side of it, anti-women side, whether it's far right, whether it's jihadi, which is uh, yeah, also quite interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to ask one more question, so just get ready. Um, one of the things, the, the other thing that you, you have talked about too, but I'd like to ask this one to you, Erin, is about the feminism. Because, I mean, you have mentioned feminism is, is to blame. We're talking about you know, how, how the world has definitely changed, but feminism seems to be, a distorted kind of feminism seems to be at play with what you're talking about, Erin. Yeah, I think, I think because we associate, obviously everyone in this room would associate feminism with very positive things, um, but I think most people are quite confused when I would say that actually many of these women joining what we would here depict as a chauvinistic, oppressive towards women group, nonetheless, you know, violence against women and sexual violence, they are seeing this act of joining it very much as a feminist movement. They wouldn't use that word, but some of the, I'll give an example maybe, but some of the memes that were going around online one of the very popular ones was uh, a play off of the makeup line CoverGirl. Uh, and instead of CoverGirl, it had an image of a woman in a full veil and it said, Covered Girl, because I'm worth it. And what that really says in this small picture and meme is, I'm refusing to be a sexual object. Look at the West. You need makeup. You see Victoria's Secret. You see the sexualization of women. I am not allowing you to objectify me. I take on the veil because I'm not a sexual object. So whereas we would see that as you're taking on the veil because as a woman you're being oppressed, they're taking on the veil as a slam to the West saying I'm not a sexual object. So we need to consider that when we're looking at pull factors of what's drawing these women out there. And it, and it really is for them very empowering. Want to say anything on the on how feminism is? I mean, one of the things I was struck by when you were, you were talking about your research is that it hasn't much changed from '78 till now. Yes. Um, no. Uh, I, well, I did want to say something, but it's more about the maturation of the frontal lobes. Okay. I think it is. I won't say too much, but essentially, it is a fact that uh, human decision-making, and decision-making in general, not just, not just in humans, um, is very much uh, seated within the frontal lobes. And uh, therefore, being able to resist impulses, being able to postpone gratification, uh, is something that we learn gradually, more in our mid to late 20s to do well, and certainly even better in our 30s, because the maturation of the brain happens from the back to the front. And it is true that our teenagers who are on video games and doing all sorts of things, or drinking too much, or sometimes taking drugs, they uh, are not as good at saying no. They are not as good as seeing the negative consequences of their actions, and not as good at uh, 
delaying that gratification for a bigger one, for example, studying for their exams because the joy of passing their exams will be greater. And I do, I'm, I'm fascinated by these, these young girls that I'm hearing about because uh, I, I know as a, it's, a, it's a fact that, that their frontal lobes will not be as well developed. And what happens as they find themselves in a different country and they suddenly do, uh, as their neurons start connecting, realize that they've made some bad decisions, potentially, and, uh, and they might actually regret some of the actions. Because, of course, with hindsight, you're very able, when you're 30, to look back on your behavior at 20 and realize you did make some mistakes there. I'm going to open to the floor. We have one mic. Sorry, I know I've got a mic going this way and it doesn't pick me up going to the right. So we take you there and then there and then in the middle. Okay. Thank you. Hi, thank you for that. That was really interesting. I was just wondering of all the panel, um, what you thought of the case recently of the 16-year-old girl who was taken away from her parents because the, um, it was feared that she was becoming radicalized by them. Is that the way to go or is that a sort of an extreme intervention. And um, secondly, I wanted to ask of Henrietta, um, you seem to lump um, female war correspondents and extremists in the same category. I mean, is it really the same motivation? <laughs> That's more my fault than hers. <laughs> okay, well, while you're getting over to the other person, I think, yeah, should I we can... get Aaron on the... I can answer that one. I did some media around that exact topic, and I know the case uh, quite well as it's developing. I mean, that was a very we kind of have to go case by case because, as I've said, there's different push and pull factors. And in this particular case, it is quite precedent setting because this is a girl, so it's a 16-year-old British girl. She actually tried to go out to Syria in December but was detained. Her parents, as the media said, quote-unquote, played ball and said, we'd like to take her back. We will, of course, work on this. Uh, and in a random checkup with the family, they found that actually the home was full of terrorist propaganda, including bomb-making kits and a range of other things. What was interesting is that the reporting only talked about the fact that child services took the girl away from the family, which that is a, a health and safety, child safety issue more than a direct terrorist issue at a certain level. My question was to these people, what happened to the parents? If you go into a household full of terrorist propaganda and bomb-making kits, and nobody seemed to know what was being followed up with for the parents, because surely we can't just assume that it'll now be better just because the girl is removed if the parents are also having issues. We shouldn't be ageist with who we help. So, you know, if, if there's a family that is self-radicalizing in a vacuum, then, then there does need to be intervention. Uh, on some different levels to help it because nothing in isolation just magically gets better usually. But that was more of a health and safety, child safety issue. Uh, and it was an extreme case where there was actually incitement to violence within the household. Um, and uh, just to reassure you in answer to your question, it really was to do with the panel and the way it grew because we were talking about women and extreme uh, what activities that might take women slightly outside the uh, everyday norm and what kinds of behaviours could we think about. And, and, and when we look at character traits and personality types, the climbers and the war correspondents have been studied quite well in psychology, um, more than other professions. Um, and this was very much about 
or, beca or became even more so with Erin's experience about uh, you know the, these young girls leaving. So so I was sort of lumping things together, but I wouldn't ordinarily lump no. these things together. <laughs> Although, although not to go directly against that, but I would say when we look at some of the profile of these young idealists, we're looking at similar profiles to individuals that might otherwise join the Peace Corps or chain themselves to a tree. It's just that it's been channeled in a different way. So, you know, we should see the nuance in that these are individuals that a lot of the women I look at are very intelligent, they're very politically active and motivated, and they're wanting to make a change in the world. Things that we usually say yeah. are amazing yeah. traits in yeah. young people, yeah. they're just being channeled in the wrong direction. All right, that's a very good point. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, hello. Thank you. Um, I was really interested to hear the panel's views on women who are, as well, taking themselves into, into areas of danger, but also their children. And just recently, uh, when, when we were hearing about the bombing of the temple, I mean, that, that was outrageous. But on the same day, actually, there was a report of children who were killing the Syrian soldiers, which was just really quite difficult to comprehend. And, it's, and, it's, and you just, I just do kind of wonder, what's the pull factor for women who are taking their children they may want to seek the thrill themselves, but they're taking their children into very serious dangers, asking them really to do something which, as we've heard one of the panels say, it's a very difficult thing to do, to kill somebody, and you see children killing Syrian soldiers. So I'd be really interested in hearing the panel's thoughts on, on, on that sort of behavior. Would you like to say anything about that? Me? Yeah. Um, well, probably like when it comes to the research, uh, you know more about the women who takes the children in. Uh, so um, what I do know, a lot of children are being born there now. So the cases that I've studied, they're very often teenage girls. They're unmarried, they never had a boyfriend, and they want to get married. And they do get married within a few weeks in the Islamic State. Uh, and they get pregnant, and very often, uh, whenever if there had been if they had been if there had been a free choice for them to come back, this would have been the period where a substantial number of them would have gone back. Uh, that's according to reports I read. You know, parents who've been in contact with their daughters and so on. That something they be, they're so radicalized, brainwashed, whatever you call it. And then at the end of the pregnancies, they realize that, you know, this might, you know, I have a different responsibility. So I think, after all, uh, very few women do go with their children. Those who do get pregnant get a second thought then, but then for most of them, it's too late because that's what the Islamic State wants. They want children, they need uh, women to build that state. Uh, when it comes to the children who do the um, executions, uh, they're usually from 12 and up. Uh, and that's extreme indoctrination. They have usually come with their parents from, uh, yeah, from Central Asia, from this examples from Australia, from North Caucasus, from the Chechnya, from so it's uh, that's definitely uh, the parents uh, to blame her. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a couple of things at play. For we know that when we look at cognitive openings, that's more your train, but I'll get a little psychological. Actually, when we look at these women and when we can see flickers of um, doubt, maybe, it's usually the death of a husband or the birth of a child. 
Um, and you have two choices as a woman at that point. First of all, a quarter of the women in our database already have martyred husbands within a six-month period. Um, so the martyrdom issue is a big one. But you have a choice, and you could choose to doubt being there, but as a female, that's not really a choice because you're not allowed to leave the household without male permission and you're not allowed to leave the household without a male chaperone. So you can't just stray towards the border and expect to come back. So really the better choice is to radicalize further and we should not discount violent radicalization. It is a dehumanizing process. They are seeing the non-believers as non-human. We have seen genocide before. This is not different than Hitler Youth. This is not different than other forms of violent extremism. We should not discount that, and women are also very capable of it. And we see women tweeting pictures of their babies with grenades next to them yeah. uh, and with paraphernalia of Islamic State flags on them. So again, we should not discount that women are just as equal of having very violent radicalization that dehumanizes others, including women being very aware of Yazidi sexual violence towards other women and allowing it within their households. So that might seem shocking, but we shouldn't be gendered with how we see how radicalization works with women. Okay, we could question here, and then one in the middle, because we're coming, and okay, we'll come at the end, so go ahead. Um, obviously, it's a very complex issue at the moment, and the direction in terms of social policy and being able to deal with it differs from different countries, and also people want to feel safe. So I'm ambivalent about whether I want somebody who's been to Syria to come back to Britain. But I do want to look at where do you see social policy going in a positive direction that helps this issue to bring people back home if that's what they want to do, if they're able to get back home. I mean, just to touch on that, I, off the record, because I'm sure I'm not supposed to say that for work, <laughs> I'm a pacifist. So I don't agree with leaving people in dangerous war zones. And I think if people want to come back, uh, it's impossible to calculate if someone's lying if they want to come back. Somebody came up with a figure saying one in 10 are a potential risk to society. There's no way of calculating that. You, you have no way of doing that. However, uh, there is due process. So for anyone coming back, there is due process. And actually, the UK has one of the most strict terrorist legislations in all of the West. Uh, maybe not as strict as America. <laughs> but uh, I, I can also say that we are actually at a positive to be optimistic, not just because I'm from California, but <laughs> the fact that we're talking about counter-extremism and not just counter-terrorism, if you compare this to Ireland in the 70s, the rhetoric around terrorists was just that, you are a terrorist. So the fact that we are talking in policy about countering extremism, preventing violent extremism. I don't think any government official ever gets their words completely right in any speech that comes out. I'm always a little cringing. But the fact that we are recognizing that there is a process and the fact that we're recognizing you can't just throw someone in jail and expect them to come out not a terrorist in 10 years is actually very positive. So to throw a hint of optimism in there. <laughs> Okay, we're gonna, we've only got a few more minutes, so I want to pack in a bit more in the middle. It is interesting that a lot of work done with young people previously was done under the area of community cohesion, and when the, the policy change and the funding was linked towards prevention of terrorism, a lot of religious groups stopped working with local authorities and other groups because they, they felt that they were being labeled as potential terrorists. My question is, I've previously done work with young people uh, for faith communities and political participation. 
To what extent, uh, for, the, for these young women, is this a search for meaning? A search for meaning, particularly if they're living in faith communities where they're very patriarchal, they have religious leaders who, are, who have very little understanding of young people, um, and they're also being, being attracted to internet images of what they see as injustice to their communities. They see innocent bombing of people in Syria and Iraq. They see drone attacks killing innocent people, and they're being fed with these images. The other quick question is, to what extent do we have evidence of young women being involved in right-wing activities and not just these, these religious activities? Yeah, I'll do really quick blitzkrieg through that. That's probably not the right word, but um, <laughs> the, uh, the government in 2011, in their review of Prevent, because I'm a massive nerd, uh, actually the 2011 review cut community cohesion funding out of the prevention network, which they are now regretting and starting to filter back in, but that's why any faith leaders, community groups, all that funding got cut in 2011. So there was kind of a lot of damage with working with civil society after that. As far as a search for meaning, as I said, if you have questions about why the world is the way it is, where do you go right now as a young person? There's not very good outlets, community cohesion, faith groups, there's a lot of different ways of having that. That's necessary to have a dialogue, and that dialogue's missing, and right now we have an extremist minority that has hijacked this discourse. Um, the internet never radicalizes in isolation. You don't go online shopping for shoes and accidentally become a jihadist. So, and that, that's laughable, but actually government policy with censorship initiatives is really assuming that you're radicalizing online. I've tried. I've seen all the material, I've seen way too much. I also go to PTSD therapy for it. But you don't just radicalize just watching an image here. First of all, you have to find the network, and that's actually quite difficult to find the right network. So it's an online, offline issue, and, and community cohesion, I'm all for it. That is one of the roots. Do you have anything to say about um, right-wing, women attracted to right-wing yeah, organizations? Well, uh, definitely, I think, um, just as when you look at the jihadists, it's, you could say about a tenth, right, of those who go are women. Yeah. So I think you could also have that ratio a bit on the far right uh, scene, at least that's uh, uh, what we see on the streets. You don't see that many women out. Uh, but these are organizations that are not really membership based. Uh, but it's very much a male-oriented and male-driven. Uh, mm. uh, like extremism in general is male-driven, driven, yeah. it seems. Yeah. Henrietta? Um, I hope we could get to a point where some sort of screening instrument, maybe that is uh, a, a, a very scientific word, but there are going to be ways in which we can start identifying uh, vulnerability and risk points in the, either in the personalities or in the home environments or in the kind of peer contact or peer pressure groups uh, that are impacting enough on some of these girls to trigger the idea and to trigger that uh, jump into more extreme thoughts and uh, therefore I, I, I feel that it would be worthwhile and you know, if we're thinking about spending money one of the things we could start doing is to look at large groups of young people and work out uh, longitudinally which ones of them end up going it's expensive but it might be a very important lesson to learn because as you say it's not just this particular extremism but there are others and there will be more in the future 
it's such an interesting thing, just what you're talking about, this balance always, isn't it? Intervention, privacy, you know, who are we? We, just, we can take this last question. I hope it's short. <laughs> do, do, one, one very quick question for Erin. Are they lonely? And one quick question for Asni. Yeah. Did you find that your aversion to the thrill was a sudden inversion, or was it gradual? You want to do the thrill seeker first? Um, <laughs> your new characterization. Aversion to it, he possessed. Yeah. Um, I think it happened, uh, this sounds banal, but it think, I think it happened when I uh, got pregnant. <laughs> I, I, got, I became, yeah, but I think it sounds banal, but it's true. Uh, I got children, I have two children. And after that, and I've been back, to, you know, the Arab Spring and all that, and the front lines in Libya. And I remember, I remember I made a choice for myself when I was, um, uh, it was before the fall of Gaddafi and there was still a front line in Libya. And I, before leaving Oslo, I said, Osna, you're not going to the front line and you have to do the decision back home. Because once you're in the field, mm. you're there for breakfast, you're there for the tea, the others are going, and are you going to stay behind? And I said, like, you're not going, you're not going. And that exactly happened. Are you going to the front line? I'm not going. I'll, mm. do, another, I'll do the stories behind the front line. Mm. And hadn't I made the decision back home? Because I have children, because they need me, and they don't need a dead mother. Uh, so, so it's probably grad like happened with the children, but it's also a decision. Like my frontal lobes <laughs> <laughs> were so strong. I can see them pretty big at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like stronger than the yeah. <clears throat> okay. Are they lonely? Quick, just very to quickly. I think there's a difference between being lonely and feeling a lack of belonging. So a lot of these women have very strong social networks. Nobody suspected they weren't considered loners. Like lone wolf terrorist actors, very different. But there's definitely a sense of alienation. And especially in Western countries, when we look at Muslim second, third generation women, they are more verbally and even physically abused compared to their male cohorts, especially if you wear a hijab. The two most common abuses are people trying to rip off your veil and spitting at you. So when we look at these sort of alarm bells, then we think you might have a lot of friends and be very happy in theory, but if you're never made to feel like you actually belong or actually British, then that is another issue. Thank you so much. I, the thing is, I normally make books, not events, and I'm always jamming all sorts of stuff in, so we've really done that today. I must say, this is really gripping. We could speak for another hour, but I'm sure we can't because <laughs> someone's standing at our door. However, we are going to the signing tent now. I mean, Austin is the only one who's actually got a book out. Erin's got a few um, of her nerdy reports, but they are quite gripping, it has to be said. And you can have more chats with Henrietta. Thank you so much. That was really interesting. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.